study the book of Psalms. And uh, we're going to pick on one in particular, Psalm 142. um, And let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts and our understandings and help us, Lord, these truths as we know are spiritually understood. They're spiritually discerned. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to apply these truths so that we could not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word and be blessed. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, God wants you to complain. No, 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 wait a second here. The Bible encourages it. In fact, he, there's uh, a model for us to follow in the scriptures. However, I should clarify, <laughs> it's not that kind of complaining, certainly not in the sense of grumbling or self-pity, that bitterness that divorces itself um, from faith and turns it back on God. And just, you know, I don't need to describe that ungrateful attitude that sort of poisons everybody around you, right? Why do I have to be the first to apologize? Why do I always get stuck with the hard jobs? Why don't you ever... Yeah, yeah, okay, you know. Nothing ever seems to go right for me. It's that Eeyore spirit of complaining. And of course... Uh, there are commands against it because the Bible calls that kind of complaining a sin. And so he says in Philippians chapter 2, do everything without complaining or arguing and show yourself to be true uh, children of the Lord. And so the complaining that I'm talking about um, really in the right way to bring um, our feelings and our frustrations Um, to the Lord in an honest way, our feelings of sorrow or disappointment or frustration, to let him in on our struggle. Now, uh, let me just show you, like Psalm 142, this is just sort of a teaser because we're going to dive in later, but I cry, cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint uh, before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. So thank you for that verse. And in this regard, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor, you, you, you bring your, you're complaining of a pain, right? So in that regard, you're saying, I'm, I'm having uh, a trouble here in my back. And, and you brought your complaint before uh, this doctor in the spiritual sense of that. Uh, understanding, you would bring a complaint spiritually to to the Lord, the great physician of our souls, right? And so 
This is an amazing insight to me. Uh, a legitimate part of worship is to be honest and to bring our honest feelings concerning difficulties, frustrations, and our problems, bearing our souls before God. This is a part of Old Testament worship. This is a part of the Psalms. In fact, most of the Psalms fall under the category of Psalms of lament or Psalms of complaint. That's what they're called. Now, this is a fascinating insight here that really to, to have a relationship with God, to worship God, you've got to be real. You've got to bring and integrate your true self in a real, open, personal way. That means the good, the bad, and the ugly is a part of worship. It's in the Psalms. That's how we approach. So God is saying, in order to worship the way that God wants us to worship, we've got the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to approach God. And half of them are me-centered uh, psalms that always end with God-centered praise and hope and faith. But that voice of complaint, Lord, I'm confused. Lord, I'm bothered. Lord, I'm upset. Lord, I'm afraid. These kinds of things. And so for me, instead of you know going through the motions in worship or keeping it in or not being real with God and just telling him what he already knows, just what you're struggling with, how you're dealing with it, how maybe you're failing in all of these things. Uh, because pretending everything is okay and just having a surface relationship with God is not true worship as the Psalms show us. You have to bring it out and be real and transparent with him. And we're going to talk about all the different facets of that even tonight, because we're doing a series, as most of you know, on the Psalms. There are 150 God-breathed, inspired by the Lord uh, hymns, songs, poems set to music, and the scholars have grouped them into several categories, and here are seven that I showed you last week, and this is how we're sort of tackling uh, the Psalms. To get an overview, we're just going to look at the different categories and then talk about those, and it covers quite a lot of ground. And so last week, we hit the hymns for special occasions, but here they are. Just review them really quick. So hymns are, uh, humnos in the Greek just means an ode to a hero, a song written for a hero. So a hymn is a song a song of praise. So there are a bunch of uh, psalms that are straight up praise. God, you're awesome. And let me tell you, list all the ways you're so awesome. And then uh, let's skip over this one. Uh, hymns of testimony. Uh, I was down and out, and the Lord came through. Let me tell you about it. And you could, uh, there were individual testimonies and national. We Israelites uh, have a testimony as well, the congregation uh, songs. Hymns of provocation, all the psalms. These are just one or two examples of what uh, this category is. Hymns of provocation, I told you last week, where, where uh, God, go, go after those bad guys and teach them a good lesson. <laughs> all right? And so we're going to talk about those. Those are, those are fun. Hymns of wisdom are just like the Proverbs set to music. 
you know, just wisdom of how to have a blessed life and avoid the pitfalls of foolishness. Hymns of the Messiah are songs about the life and work of Christ and uh, the coming Messiah. He would come in a thousand years from most of those uh, psalms being written. And hymns for special occasions, which we already looked at, uh, hymns for the Jewish holidays and all the joy that went along with that. So tonight, we're going to go to the hymns of lament. And lament isn't really the right word, because you lament, you mourn like a death. But Christians mourn in a different way. We mourn not as the world mourns their losses, but we mourn with a kind of a hope and a joy, and looking to God. And so, really, uh, it's more of a song of sorrow or songs of uh, disillusionment. And so we're going to take a look at this. Um, Here's how we're going to do it. We'll take Psalm 142. There are seven tight, little, concise uh, verses, and uh, we'll use it as a template. We'll have it up here now for you. Uh, as a whole, but it's a perfect example of this category. And like I said, can you imagine of all the Psalms, you know, and and people, you know, Christians have their favorite kinds of worship music. And right, so a lot of people might say, you know, hymns or worship courses should be always God-centered, right? But they have failed to do the research into the Psalms where you find half of the Psalms about our painful experience and needing to look to God through our pain and struggle and sorrow to find solace and comfort and a way through praising him through our troubles. And so uh, this is what we look at tonight. And this is... uh, uh, We're going to look at all the different kinds of aspects of a a song uh, about sorrow. I'll read it. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. There's a sermon there. Uh, Verse 3, when my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see. No one's concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set my Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And so this is a nice little template, as I said. And so, you know, the first thing that we're looking at here is a model of a prayer of complaint that shows really the holy balance between really... Honestly, talking about the desperate situation along with your desperate emotions that go with those problems of fear and loneliness and weakness. And the other side of that is the confidence amid the storm, the trust and the hope and and the faithfulness of God, even though, even though. 
So we're going to dissect this psalm, kind of an anatomy of uh, a song of sorrow. When life's upside down, how's the right way to approach God when you're in trouble, when you're in hot water, when you're feeling stressed out about something? Uh, It divides quite nicely, and most of the songs of lament, if we're going to call them that, uh, the psalms that talk about our struggles, divide three ways. First, there's always the address And you see that here in 1 through 3. And then the problems laid out before the Lord in verses really 3b to 4. And then it closes up with an expression of confident faith in the Lord. And that's how all the Psalms that express the struggle end up on a positive note. So let's take a look and isolate that first part. Note takers, we're in the address now. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to him. Now, you can see four times it's emphasized right there. I'm crying out to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord. I pour out my heart to him. It's before him that I tell all my troubles. Now, right away, you're going to know that the Psalms of complaint look to God for their help. The psalmist. And when you're in trouble, the key. And right away, you already know this story's going to end well. This guy's going to be okay. Why? Because he's not looking to his 401k. He's not looking to his own resources, or he's not looking to uh, the police or calling 911, or he's not saying, listen, you know, the army's coming and they're going to rescue me. He's saying, listen, I don't have any of that anyway right now, but I'm going to call on the Lord for times it's emphasized God is not stuttering right he's teaching us a lesson when there's repetition he's teach he has something in mind and so as I said we already know it's going to be okay for this guy because he knows to whom he must turn in times of trouble and, and Christians can walk with God for a long time and still not know who to turn to in times of trouble. We'll say, you know, it got so bad, we prayed about it. And did you hear that? Catch that? It got so bad that we even prayed about it. I I mean, it came down to that, if uh, if you can imagine. So the man is not looking to himself or to his resources or to his strength, but to God the Lord. Now, speaking of that, he's looking to the all caps Lord. Now, somebody asked me on Sunday, why sometimes is the word Lord in all caps? And in the same verse, you could have all caps Lord, and you can have Lord with lowercase. What is that? Well, let me tell you. When the Bible got translated into English in the 1600s, uh, the English um, translators uh, wanted you to know that there were two different Hebrew words being used for Lord. And so, L, all caps, Lord, is Yahweh, the Lord's covenant name. And in the Old Testament, that name for God, Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. The reason why we don't know if it's Yahweh or Jehovah or Yahovah or something slightly different is because ancient Hebrew left out the vowels. And in written Hebrew, spoken, they had the vowels. But they decided that they didn't want to speak the name. So it was called a tetragrammaton. 
it means just four letters. That just means four letters. And here are the four letters. All right? So it can go, if you fill in the vowels, it could go Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to sing your praise. Right? Or Jehovah. So either way, you're talking about the covenant name. When, when you hear covenant name, it means when Moses met the Lord in the burning bush, he said, who are you? And the Lord said, I am. So Yahweh means I am. I, I'm, I'm the self-existing one. I was, I am, I will be. I, I am what I am. I, 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 I will become who I will become. I was what I was. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. And so he links that name to the promise to care for his people. That's why it's called his covenant name. The other L-O-R-D is Adonai, and it really emphasized God's power. So Yahweh is his faithfulness to his people, the sovereign Lord who watches over us, and, and, and just different nuances. In the uh, New Testament, and thank you, you can go back to the verse, uh, in the New Testament, if you're interested, Lord is kudios. It just means sovereign master. And that's the word that's always uh, associated with lordship when you hear Lord in the New Testament. But the New Testament's favorite word for God is God, theos. And it just means mighty God, supreme place. And so with that, yeah, for the psalmist, listen, he's figured it out. It's God or bust, you know? Uh, it's God or bust. He's looking good because he's looking to God alone. And if listen, if you ever want resolve, you ever want breakthrough, you ever want healing, you ever need anything out of your time of trouble, you have to catch what truth is here. It's God and God alone. You see, yes, God rescues us in practical ways, and it's not wrong to rely on the practical help that God provides human beings in the form of uh, soldiers and military and, and police and, and doctors and lawyers and everything between. But the, the truth of the Bible is, is that it will be ultimately God working through these powers to bring the healing. And, and David caught that. And David is just saying, listen, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. This is Psalm 20, but not me. I know. He says, I, I love this. He says, uh, you know, a horse is, uh, let me just show you here, Psalm 33. Here's the idea that's in the addressing of God. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite its, all, despite its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. God and God's love is the one who delivers us from death and keeps us alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He's our help and shield. In him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And so 
He's really got it. Listen, David saying, it's not my best friend, Jonathan. I have a best friend. He's a mighty warrior. He's Saul. Saul is trying to kill David in, in the context of this song. Saul's son is loyal to David and they're best friends. But when he looks to his right hand, he says, nobody's there, God. Nobody's there. Jonathan's not here. My family's not here. He writes another psalm and he says, even when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. So it's not mom and dad. It's not Jonathan. It's not the cavalry. It's the Lord first. Deal with the Lord first. Then pick up the phone. And even when you pick up the phone and you're getting help, know that it's God who has arranged that help for you and without his blessing those who labor and build a house they labor in vain without the blessing of the Lord unless the Lord builds the house those who labor the construction workers are just wasting their time and so that's the first point if you want to break through narrow your search results uh, on Google to God <laughs> alone he he and, and here's the reason why. He, he's, uh, I'm just going to put this out here before God because God is my only hope and also God's the only one with the clear vantage point of my life. You, you can put the, the, the verses back, the, the beginning verses. Thank you. God is the, the only one who knows my way. You see that in the text. He says, listen, he's my only hope and because he's the only one who really gets it. He's the only, so when he says he knows my way, he means two things. He knows the way I got into this, and he knows the way I'm going to get out of this, right? Who else knows that? Who else knows what's going on in my mind? Who else knows the complicated story? It's God who understands who's responsible, who's, who's what's really going on, what the true problem is, every little detail. The secret and unseen aspects of your struggles. God sees. He knows when you get up. He knows when you lie down. Uh, Psalm 139 says, If I take the wings of the dawn and I make my, my bed in the heavens, he, he knows. He's there, right? If I make my bed in, in the depths, it says in the grave in Sheol, he knows about it. If I move to the far side of the other side of the sea, even there, he's with me to guide me, to help me. And so he, he gets it. He knows where, where I'm at. He knows how high the waters are getting. He knows um, the way that I take. And so he says, I'm calling on God because he's my hope and, um, and because he knows what's going on with me better than anybody else. Else, And that's, I just kind of see the spirit of these songs is to say, this is my father. I go into the closet and I, I lay out my inmost feelings that I would never tell another soul before the God who made me and loves me the way I am. And it just brings him into this tight, safe, beautiful place between him and God Almighty. And so the song of lament is looking to God and then laying out the problem. So we're already at two here. The second point, 
in the path where I walk, men, Lord, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see there's nobody concerned for me here. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And then more in verse 6, it says, For I'm in desperate need. I'm being pursued by those too strong for me. So he lays out uh, the, the um, problem here. So let's talk about this. David is in a pickle. All right. I mean, he's actually in a cave. All right. And he's in a cave. And if you uh, check out the top of your psalm in some of your Bibles, it, it says a maskil. Maskil means a song of instruction. So this is meant not just to bleed all over the page, but to show you when you're bleeding, how to bleed in the correct formation of faith. <laughs> All right, so it's an instructive psalm. Just don't, not about self-pity. We're going to talk about that. It's a different kind of grieving. It's grieving in faith and hope and all of this worship. And so, um, so it says, a mascal of David when he was in the cave. When he was in the cave. That's an understatement because he was in multiple caves he was in two caves, two famous caves, a dulam in 1 Samuel 22, and he was in, in Gedi in 1 Samuel 24, trapped like some kind of animal, being pursued by a monstrous king bent on uh, murder and destruction, King Saul. So how it all started, how he got here, and what's behind these words is King David is about 20. He's about 20. He just killed Goliath. He's a young man. He's just freshly out of his teens. And everybody loves him. And he's tall, good-looking, handsome kid, strong, brave. And he faced the Goliath that King Saul wasn't willing to face. And then he started going out with the uh, soldiers and, and, and really pushing back those Philistines. Well, what happened is the, the women in Israel, when the guys would come back from their military campaigns, they would sing worship songs and little limericks set to music. And one of the songs they would sing was, um, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel that that song went straight through under the ribcage and got straight into Saul's heart. And he said, what more will David take from me? He's going to grab the whole kingdom. And so he was demonized. He was demonized. That guy had a demon. And he was out to kill David. And there's always more to the story. Why does he, oh, by the way, this went on for eight years. Eight years, from 20 to 28, 22 to 30, they say. Uh, Saul was chasing him throughout the countryside, and he's hiding in places like caves. And when he's in a cave, instead of saying, how could you let this happen to me? What have I done to deserve this and all of this? And ending it there, he's taken out his harp. If he's got a little harp in the knapsack, he's taken out his little. He's writing songs of worship in the worst possible times of his life. It could get no darker than inside of a cave. 
with some king chasing you around. And so he's singing these uh, songs to kind of encourage himself. And he just kind of lays it out here. Now, um, to finish the story, Jonathan, David's best friend, right, gave him a heads up and said, my father's going to kill you. And um, David was lowered out of a window and escaped and headed out for the hills. If you go with us to Israel, we go to these hills because guess what? They're still there. <laughs> All right. So if you go to En Gedi, we drive right, we drive right in front of this road. And uh, this, these are back in here, the caves of En Gedi. And uh, I got another picture. And you go walking around. There are mountain goats there as the deer pants for the water. You see what he's, what, how he was riding and just really, uh, and, and he was in and out of some of those caves, you know, just a, an amazing thing. And so thank you uh, for that. And so in those caves, it's a dark time. And so he lays out, here's how I'm feeling, God. My life is in danger. <laughs> there are traps set before me. I can't see. The madman is out there slandering me to everybody. The whole army is on his side right now, right? They're coming after me. Nobody's standing with me. I'm in this cave by myself. Look to my right hand. There's nobody there. Jonathan would be there. He's not here. I don't have him. I don't have, no one's concerned. No one cares about my life. No one's concerned. I'm in desperate need. I'm outgunned. I'm outnumbered. I'm no match for this. There's anxiety. He's scared. He's hungry. He's probably thirsty. He's dirty. He has no change of clothes, that many clothes, right? He's on the run. No rest. He's separated from his family and friends. And he lays it out. He just lays it out. This is how I'm feeling. I have nobody, but I have you. Here are some other examples of songs of lament. I'm angry, Psalm 140. I'm afraid, Psalm 69. I'm depressed, Psalm 88. I'm confused, Psalm 102. I've got a lot of enemies, and I'm tired of crying myself to sleep, Psalm 6. It feels like I'm going to die, Lord. Um, you're nowhere around. It feels like I'm losing the battle with these thoughts of mine, Psalm 13. I've lost all courage, Psalm 40. My best friend stabbed me in the back. Psalm 41. I'm surrounded. There's no way out. Psalm 22. People lied about me, slandered me, cut me up with their tongues. Psalm 140. You get the picture? These are lyrics in the worship courses. Lyrics in their worship courses. God wants us to be real because most of us are in all of that. We're in all of that. And we like to pretend like we're not, but we are from time to time. We go through these seasons and God's just saying, be real with me. 
Make this a part of coming into my presence. Don't just come in and don't talk about the most important thing that's on your heart right now. That's what he's saying. Now, D.A. Carson, really well-known Bible commentary, uh, commentator, I should say, theologian. He says, there's no attempt here in these kinds of psalms to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue the situation, their situation with God. They complain to God about how they're feeling, about how they want the things to resolve. They weep before God and God weeps with them. Theirs is not a faith that leads to dry-eyed stoicism, but to a faith so robust, robust it wrestles with God. But all the while, they are careful to maintain holy reverence, faith, and a submitted heart and life. Now, I've told you about this, this guy I went to Bible college with. He came in uh, after an evening chapel service, and I said, where did you go? And he said, I was out in the meadow there, and I just had it out with God. But that's not exactly how he put it. And I don't really want to tell you. It was just profane, right? And so I don't recommend that. I don't recommend shaking your fist at God and telling God off is essentially what he did. Uh, you, you, you know what? There's a righteous way to be angry and upset. But at the end of all of these psalms, there's always a shout out to the goodness of God. There's always a but. There's always a, oh, but I'll lift my eyes anyhow, you know, and you're good and I know that full well, you know. So there's a reverent way. Now, this isn't self-pity. This isn't self-pity. Let me tell you the difference between this and self-pity. Self-pity, there's a lot of pride. It's all about you, right? How, how dare you let me go through this? Because I don't deserve this, all right? So that's the beginning of self-pity. These kinds of songs, they're, they're just humble. They're broken. Oh, God, how can this be happening? You know, there's no accusation. There's no pointing of the finger. There's, there's just a, a humble dependent brokenness and a realness to say, look, these are some of my emotions, but I don't dare blame you for anything, you see? Um, Self-pity wants attention from everybody. You know, woe is me. You know, it's so manipulative too, self-pity, right? These songs really are looking for God's attention, God's attentive care. It's not trying to get everybody to gather around and, and, and feel sorry for me. Uh, Self-pity makes excuses to isolate, right? These psalms are always like, I'm cut off. I want to get back. I want to be serving. I don't want to make, listen, self-pity will make an excuse why I stopped coming or why I stopped serving or why I stopped believing or why I fell into sin, was essentially because of some terrible trouble and disillusionment and disappointment. It's not handled well in faith through worship. Bring that into worship, God says, and that will change. But self-pity says, oh, you did this. I lost that. You allowed this to happen. Oh, I'm out of here. That's self-pity. These are not self-pity. This is just saying being honest with God 
and turning some of these things over to him. Self-pity divorces itself from God. It gets angry, resentful, and indignant. You know, I've mentioned this before, Anne of Green Gables, we watched it, I don't know, uh, 14,000 times <laughs> growing up with Jordan. And I enjoyed it uh, because it was time with Jordan and it was fun. And I, I told you this, I love this scene. This is my favorite quote, probably from any movie. I just love it. Anna's sitting there pushing around her food, you know, and she's got an adopted uh, mom, uh, Marilla, and she's pushing around her food and she says, why aren't you eating? And she says, oh, I'm in the depths of despair, right? <laughs> so uh, she says, uh, she says, Marilla, have you, have you ever been in the depths of despair? Marilla says, no, I have not. She says, well, Marilla, could you imagine being in the depths of despair? And she said, no, I can't, because to despair is to turn your back on God. Oh. I love that. Just put that little Anne in her place. <laughs> That's self-pity. Is to say, woe is me. Look what happened. Listen, sir or ma'am. Whatever happened to you, Job experienced a hundred times what you went through. And not to make light of it, because some of you and some of us have gone through some stuff to make a head spin around in circles, right? But listen, Job is in the Bible because Job handled it. He worshiped through it. Oh, some of those chapters in between, you know, uh, chapters 2 and 40. <laughs> wow, there's a lot of wrestling in there, right? But he worshiped his way through the loss of all his children, his health, his marriage, his life, his bank account, his home, everything wiped out. And he said, I came into this world naked. I'm going out naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Should we not accept the bad stuff as well as the good? And though he slay me, if he came at me with a knife, I trust him. Yeah, so Job has just kind of pulled the rug out from all of us. Don't you love him? None of us. I mean, we got to go move from self-pity to worship, to worship, to take it and, and, and let it propel us into a worshipful place. That's going to be a lot better. Amen. It's time to finish up. I cry to you, Lord, I say, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Time to pull the nose up, all right? Listen to my cry. I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So always, as I said, you know, there's always the pulling up of the nose of the plane, um, Faith will lead the way. And so you'll notice there's a return to the focus, right? So we're done with the complaint. And now he goes back to, I cry to you, O Lord. Oh, well, now that we're talking about the Lord instead of my problems, right? Now the emotion is going to change a little bit. So I look at this as self-talk. Self-talk, where the worshiper corrects himself. And the songs of sorrow, the songs of lament, often have 
the person who's going through the hardship talking to themselves and encouraging themselves with the truth of the situation, spiritually speaking. We're supposed to think on things that are excellent and good and worthy of praise to keep our minds on things that are true and noble and right and good. We're supposed to be taking every thought captive to the gospel. So you get a thought, how does it line up with the gospel and the Bible? So you take that captive and you pull it down. I picture a last suit in that thing and pulling it down and say, no, 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 no. Ross, the Bible says, Jesus said, and you have to self-correct. And that's what everyone in these Psalms does in worship. It self-corrects. It says, yeah, I know you feel that way. Tell the Lord about it. Lord, I feel this way. And and, And he takes that. And he changes that, and he transforms that. I'm telling myself the truth, you know? He says, you know, I'm all alone. No, you're not all alone. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I feel like I'm not going to make it. Well, the Bible says, he who began a good work in you, Ross, will carry it out. John, Barb, Del, Daryl, Jamie, it's who. These concepts and promises, you have to grab hold of them. The number one cause of spiritual immaturity and shipwreck of faith is lazy, intellectually speaking, lazy Christians who will not do the work to say, to sort through their thoughts and say, out. In, good, good, out. Correction. If you don't do that, your marriage is doomed. You're, you're not going to be a fruitful and effective Christian. You have to do this incredible work, and, and God helps you to line up your thoughts and take them captive. And so that's what he's going. So number one, he says, oh, Lord, you're my refuge. I'm in this cave. I feel defenseless, but I've got a force field of God around me. That's pretty good. You know, I, 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 I hope my best friend Jonathan was here with a shield and we had some spears and stuff. But guess what? You're my refuge. What am I thinking? I don't need anybody. I don't need an army. I've got God. God says, I am your shield. I'm your light. I'm your salvation. And so he's just correcting himself. The word for refuge there is used so many times that God is our refuge, our say in the Hebrew. Uh, it means to shelter you from rain or the elements of or a storm. It just is this beautiful picture. And, and so he's saying, I'm safe. I'm hidden in God. You know, so I'm going to take my thoughts captive here. God is my shield. He's my protector. Uh, then he says, he's my portion. What does that mean? It mean, He says this a lot in the Psalms. And we sing it. God, you are my portion. We don't really use that in English, right? Oh, to be your portion, if I said this portion of the pie is yours, right? Okay, he's saying your, your God is mine. He's my right. He's my, my possession. God is my life, my home. So, so what am I afraid of some demonized king out there? And you know what? Samuel several chapters earlier, had already come to David when he was out with his sheep and said, listen, 
I, I have got something to tell you. The Lord wants you to be the next king. When he was a little a teenager. So in the back of his mind, he's got to say, listen here. God's not done with me yet. I've got reason. And he gives people reasons. Before you go through your tunnel, he'll just give you a reason. Or he'll just give you a little prompt that he's... You're, you're not, he's not done with you. He's, he's got you in a fiery furnace, but he's got a purpose. <clears throat> he's got something on the other side. So David had in the back of his mind the understanding that God's not through with me. God's doing something here. I'm going to come out on the other end of this. He's my portion, right? And then he says, in the land of the living. And that's just what a poetic way of saying, this is going to end well with life, right? So he's, he's going to say in another psalm, in Psalm 27, he says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For the Hebrews of that day, there were two places you could exist, in the land of the living or in Sheol, the land of the departed. But everybody lives forever. And it's the same true in the New Testament. Everybody lives forever. You live in one or two places, the land of the living or the land of the departed. And in the land of the departed, you get two options. The northbound train or the southbound train. And one is called, well, Hades covered both areas. Hades just is the Greek word for Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of departed spirits. Sheol is divided into paradise, heaven. Jesus uses the word paradise for heaven and then hell or Gehenna for the place of the departed who never reconciled with God in this life and so he says my struggle will end in life and it will even if Saul came in and killed him it ends in the land of the living now he's thinking he's going to come out of it because he's going to be king someday. Uh, but I want you to know, Jesus said, even if you die, even if you die, he says, they're going to kill some of you to his disciples. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise on the third day. They're going to bring you in and they're going to martyr you. You're going to be martyred. And then in the next breath, Matthew chapter 10, check it out. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. He just said, he's gonna, yeah, wait a second here. You should, let me do the math. Uh, you just said, uh, they're going to kill me. And then you said, but don't worry. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. How do you kill a guy and not harm a hair on his head? It's because the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my refuge. And if you're, you're joined to Christ, who's God, there's no, no harm is going to befall you. And so David is starting to say, hey, it's win-win here. Let's get our minds back on the promises of God and on his, uh, on his presence here. So faith knows God's intentions are good. Faith knows God keeps uh, us safe and carries us through. And even through death, God keeps us alive and God has the power to set him free from his prison. So in, in the faith part, there's always a request. God, I want you to set me free from this prison. That's what I want. And God has a lot of ways to set us free from our prisons. And they don't always mean we come out the next day, eight 
years. Eight years is a long time to be hunted down by a madman. Uh, but uh, he worshipped his way through it. So notice, like almost all the songs of lament, it ends on a hopeful note. He says, you know what? Here's what I want. And sometimes these songs end with a vow. If you do this, then I'm going to do that. Now, uh, <laughs> you've got to be careful when you bargain with God because he'll hold you to your vow. Set me free from my prison because I want to praise your name. I want to be in the congregation and say, let me tell you about eight years with this guy chasing after me. Let me tell you about all the ways God intervened and kept me going and gave me grace and helped me. I want to praise your name. I want to tell people that you answered all these prayers and you came through for me. So, and, and then he says, and then this is what I pictured. And this is how a song of sorrow ends. You know how I, what I picture? All these believers, my friends and family, surrounded around me, celebrating how you brought me through this terrible ordeal. That's how he closes out a song of lament by thinking to himself, there's a barbecue, we're laughing, it's the summer, all my friends and family are there, and I'm just praising the Lord and telling the story of God's goodness. That's how it ends for a worshiper who's going through the cave. Don't let your troubles derail you or shipwreck your faith. It's taken down so many people. And instead of wilting, you're going to worship your way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kind intentions how you have our backs, Lord. You have our fronts and the tops, the bottoms. You're just all around, Lord. You love us so much. We're the apple of your eye, as the psalmist says. We thank you, Father. Now we just commit ourselves to your care. We just know, Lord, in the good times, in the bad times, when you give and when you take away, we just say, blessed be your name, like Job. We thank you so much, Lord that we can be honest with you and tell you how we're doing. And it's a form of worship to you. You receive it, Lord. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.